Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and today podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, we're presenting another bonus Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus because one meaning of corona is a halo of light. So together, we're trying to find the silver lining in this pandemic. And while normally we're heard on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, this episode will be played on various podcast apps and at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Today we have a return visit guest, uh, Dr. Mark Strain, an epidemiologist at North Dakota State University in the School of Pharmacy and the Department of Public Health. Uh, He lived in China for a while, uh, knows a great deal about their history with pandemics. So Mark, it's great to have you back. Thank you very much for coming back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here again. And, and Mark, we want to take advantage of your presence for some listener questions. Um, we've been getting some really good feedback about the coronavirus episodes. And uh, we have a listener here who's writing and, and thanking us uh, for these episodes, but also with a question. And the question uh, was probably in relation to, to a previous episode with Dr. Carson, but we want to ask you. <laughs> so, Where this person lives in St. Louis and in other major cities, they have heard how COVID-19 is disproportionately hitting the African-American community compared to the rest of the population in terms of death and exposure. First, can you explain why this is? And also, it it seems as though Dr. Fernandez, uh, who we have interviewed on this show as well, said the viruses that he has seen, they've been targeting Caucasian men primarily. So why is there this this discrepancy here? Well, I kind of go with the data. So in Chicago, um, African-Americans comprise a third of their population, but they're more than half of their positive cases and 72% of their deaths. The state of Michigan, African-Americans comprise 14% of the population, and yet they are 40% of their deaths. And the same is found in Louisiana, North and South Carolina. So I think there's good evidence that African-Americans have been Uh, more affected and more severe cases. And, um, you know, as to the reasons for this, you know, it really does go back to structural inequalities in society and in our healthcare system. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of social determinants of health. And so, you know, African Americans are essential health workers. So they're the ones who are running transportation, you know, employment and, you know, they're out in the service industries. So therefore there's more likely to be exposed to COVID. Um, but also there's evidence that there's, they're less likely to be referred for testing than, uh, than uh, white uh, patients. And so there's, you know, just continued concern that we are not, still not necessarily uh, providing equal, equal service to African-Americans. And historically, there's this notion of what's called weathering, which is how African-Americans just live the entirety of their lives with higher levels of stress due to environmental exposures, racial discrimination, lack of, even lack of sleep. And this wears on them over time and therefore the chronic conditions that they receive, that they develop, uh, hit them harder and affect them worse. So uh, these are some of the factors. And I think uh, in in the short term, we just need to be aware of that. But I think in the long term, we need to try and do more to provide equality in healthcare for all. Is, is there anything beyond, I guess, getting more testing, specifically targeting African-Americans, is there anything more in the short term to be done? Or is it mostly just 
being aware of this discrepancy and trying to, to supplement it in some way. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the fact is there's, you know, 12% of African-Americans have diabetes compared to 7% of whites, and therefore we can't deal with that now. They're going to be hit harder by COVID. So I think we need to just take note. This is an ongoing issue, and it should affect how we provide equal uh, health care to all moving forward. We have another question, and we thank Vicki for that last question, but we have a question now from Lauren. Lauren's husband goes to work. Lauren doesn't. Lauren is concerned about her husband contacting someone at work with COVID, but who doesn't know it. In other words, somebody who's asymptomatic, not coughing, no fever. So she's wondering, what are the odds that her husband could be bringing back home while he himself is asymptomatic, an infection from another person who might have it who's asymptomatic? Mm. Well, currently, some of the higher estimates would talk about maybe um, three to five percent of a given community might have been exposed. Those are high estimates. And then so if you talk about one individual possibly exposed but not symptomatic, and then you multiply that times her husband's also not likely exposed, but possibly and you multiply, say, three percent by three percent, you're talking about a very, very small chance of this uh, two-level transmission having happened. So I, I hope this reader is able to uh, take some consolation in that the risk is small, but continue to use the same kinds of precautions that we're being advised to use because we know that all of us do have some risk of having been exposed but not know it, um, but yet to not allow, not allow that to make us overly anxious. That sounds like good advice, Mark. Now, it's been two weeks since we last interviewed you, four weeks since we first did. What are the most fascinating things that you've learned in the last two weeks about COVID, Mark? Mm. I think one thing is some research coming out of the Los Alamos laboratories where they're reporting on data from China with suggesting that perhaps the reproductive number of COVID is actually higher than five. What? And not Yes, and uh, this is based on the notion of a serial interval of six to nine days, meaning the time between successive cases. So there's a long uh, period of time between uh, developing clinical onset and then spreading it to another individual. Um, and then also, you know, originally it was thought that the serial interval was more like four days. So significant transmission can occur prior to the onset of illness. And frankly, I have been concerned that the reproductive number reported and really held to all this time has been something like 2.5 yes. people infected. But it just seems too low to explain how contagious COVID-19, the SARS-CoV virus has been. Uh, around the world. So, you know, I'm not saying that this is the final word. We know the reproductive number is a moving target. It's based on the levels that you're using to suppress the infection and lots of factors. So um, I was just uh, curious to see that there is some suggestion that it perhaps has a, actually a higher reproductive number than had been thought. And for our listeners, if you just, again, uh, make it simple, the reproductive number means uh, that this is the number of individuals that would be expected to be uh, to develop COVID, uh, having been transmitted by by one uh, one index case. Wow! And so that that would explain some of the reason why it it expanded more rapidly than I think a lot of people predicted initially. 
Yeah, and I'm not suggesting that this is the final answer here, but you know, all of these numbers are things that are being calculated in real time. And so that was interesting to learn. I think another thing that I would like to share that I've been spending a lot of time on the last couple of weeks has to do with testing and contact tracing. Oh, yes. We're definitely seeing that states with, uh, you know, there's some states that are doing more aggressive testing and it represents like two extremes. So we have states like New York, New Jersey, Louisiana, Massachusetts, they're testing over 200 people per 10,000, but they're also finding between 40 and 50% tests positive of those that are being tested. And so it shows that there's a really high prevalence, which explains their high and aggressive testing. But there's also another category of states out there, which includes uh, Vermont, New Mexico, and even my home state of North Dakota, where we have top 10 in terms of aggressive testing mm -hmm. up to 150, 160 per 10,000, but only four or 5% positive. So that's an example where we have been ahead of the curve, but adding aggressive testing on top of that, we've then been able to keep suppress the overall prevalence of the disease in the community and be confident that we're getting at a true prevalence. So this is good news. And having said that, I'm a little bit worried about states like Texas, Kansas, Alabama, where they have low testing, less than 40 per 10,000, but also they're finding up to 10, 15, 20% of those tests being positive. And so the concern would be that they might have a kind of brewing outbreak that could grow up, uh, that could emerge uh, over the next few weeks. So uh, I've been interested in tra tracking this new development in the, in the epidemic, that of testing and contact tracing. Do, do you feel like at this point, most everybody has the tests that they need to, to test adequately? Uh, no. And, and I, you know, there's evidence around the country that there aren't enough test kits still. Now, we are seeing the emergence of the antibody testing so that we're able to start testing for the, you know, the presence of antibody and that is having been sick and that's starting to come out. But that too is in one, it's in short supply. And secondly, the validity of those tests is still circumspect. You know, the FDA has approved one now. Um, but there's uh, a lot of concern that the specificity in the positive predictive value of those tests is still uncertain, and therefore you could end up with um, uh, inaccuracy. Yeah, we've, we've definitely had patients calling up requesting those tests, and we've, mm -hmm. we've tried to tell them that, you know, this is still just hot off the press, and, and there is reason to be cautious because it would be terrible to give someone the impression that they were immune and uh, kind of go about that way. But in fact, if that was not accurate information. Yeah, exactly. Mark, on March 25th, you mentioned your first interview that you thought at that point that if we followed similar to other countries, it would take 13 days roughly to get to our peak number of cases once we started our aggressive social distancing and take 20 days, 22 days roughly to get to the, the bottom of the peak on the other side. How is reality conforming to what you originally thought might happen? Yeah, it's, it's definitely more drawn out here in the U.S. than it has been in, in some settings. Um, I think the peak, I called out the peak of April 4th, uh, two weeks ago, and that seems to be the case, which would be then 19 days from the start of social distancing to the peak. 
and that's a little longer than was seen in, in, in Italy and in China and in Korea. However, we have since that time seen a 25% decline in new cases per day, and this has remained. So this is, this is really important. I might also mention it's important to bear in mind that, you know, these epidemiology curves that we're tracking are not like a parabola that you would expect if you throw a football up in the air and then it comes down on the other <laughs> yes. side, you know, a physics question. Yes. But my friend Noel Anderson has suggested that it's more like a hot air balloon that has a ballast and that's social distancing that brings that line down, but it also has the risk of dropping the ballast, in which case it can reemerge. So we could have areas where the case numbers surge back up again if we release those social distancing practices too soon. So I think that's an important thing to bear in mind. And if you, if you look at the curves of other countries, you're going to see that, you know, occasional rise and falls, but the trends are all going down. So that's, that's all good to see. So we should not expect to get to zero. Uh, no, in fact, um, I would suggest that, you know, like Italy right now has had very good containment and they're at 30% of peak. The U.S. is currently at 75% of peak. And what I'm encouraging my friends and others interested is our goal is 10 to 20% of peak. And we should expect to then grind along for weeks or months with that level of endemic case numbers moving forward. And that would be success. That, would that be is really good to have that because there's so many people who think any cases means failure. No. And I think that, that 10 to 20% is what our, our friend Paul Carson refers to as a slow burn. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that's, that's a necessary part of building herd immunity and not shutting down our society, frankly. Because I've read that too aggressive social distancing does exactly what you said. It doesn't allow us to get to herd immunity. Right. So it, it's a balancing would, act. Would you suggest... That, that 10 to 20% is a good time to start opening stuff up. I know everyone's talking about that now. Is that really our, our metric we're looking at? That's what I would use. But, you know, I, I, I'm just an academic. And uh, so I'm not a policymaker or a, or a politician. And so I, I don't want to overstate you know, my authority. But just from my perspective, those are the kind of measures that I would be looking at. And, so, and ju just to think about that another way for non-epidemiologists, would that be the same as saying, okay, 10 to 20% of cases, how long could that go on? Would that be a year like that, potentially, till everyone gets it? Um, well, no, I don't think the goal would be to see 100% infection. The goal would be either to, well, the goal would be to gradually move toward increasing herd immunity. That would mean from 5% of the populations affected, maybe 10% to buy time until we have a vaccine. Gotcha. Now that, you know, vaccines are not a magic bullet. And so I think we need to cooperate with this human biological process in a way whereby we hope for that vaccine, you know, a year from now or so. But in the meantime, we're still doing our best to prepare for some level of uh, population-wide protection by natural uh, immunity. So when's the last, or when's the next time you're planning to get on an airplane, Mark? What, what would I it take for I was planning to go to China on, <laughs> I was planning to go to China on June 4th, and I still haven't changed those flights, but I do I don't plan to travel there on June 4th. I don't know. I'm thinking the 4th of July, uh, you know, late June. 
uh, we'll have a lot more travel and such. I think, you know, the end of May, I've been saying all along, the end of May, we'll see a res resumption of some level of normalcy, but people are not going to immediately jump on airplanes and, you know, in droves. We're going to have maybe some local level activities be restarted in June and July, and that's all good, but I think that level of, of travel nationally mm -hmm. or internationally, people are going to be cautious for, for a while. So, Mark, one other key number besides the reproductive number that we talk about is the case fatality rate. And, uh, you know, on March 25th, the data suggested that the case fatality rate was between 1.4 and 2%. But I saw an article in Lancet at the end of March that suggested it might be only 0.66%, meaning 6.6 .6 people per thousand die compared to the estimate of one per thousand for influenza. What's the latest understanding of the true case fatality rate for this disease? Yeah, you know, again, this is something that's a moving target. So first I'd like to point out that even if it is as low as 0.66%, that's still six or seven times higher than influenza, mm -hmm. right? And we've seen that the number of deaths, you know, in our country, we've already got um, 45,000 deaths, that's double a, a whole year's worth of influenza deaths. So we need to just continue to remind people this is not just influenza. Um, but in spite of that, I'm still standing by the work out of Wuhan by a, a scholar named Wu out of Hong Kong in Nature Medicine, which reports 1.4%. And um, I'm standing by that because their estimates were based on, I think, a conservative expectation that 50% of cases are symptomatic. So that's acknowledging that up to half of cases are not symptomatic. Um, they also were working from a reproductive number of 1.9, which is, um, you know, in a, in a mean serial interval of seven. And so uh, I'm still holding out that this is a more deadly a virus, substantially more deadly virus than influenza. And the absolute number, I'm holding on 1.4%. It seems to be close to what's being found in so many settings. And we know it's not easy to determine your true denominator of infected persons. Right. Um, but at the same time, I, I think, I don't know that we could benefit by somehow trying to persuade ourselves that it's actually a lot lower and therefore that's grounds to uh, not uh, be as concerned about it because I think the number of deaths justify the, the degree to which this is highly virulent. Usually does the denominator just include those people who are symptomatic or, or, or not? Because when we do the population screening, we find out a number more. In fact, that what Santa Clara County study that we might talk yeah. about, over 50 times as many yeah. people had it as were symptomatic. So it's a three-step process. So first you have to do a crude case fatality rate because you have no idea what's going on. And that was the early numbers coming out of Wuhan. Sure. And then you move to a, uh, including uh, individuals who are asymptomatic in the denominator because you now have been able to do enough surveillance to be able to increase the number of individuals who are truly infected by uh, testing Okay. surveillance testing, but there's a third level at which you then refine that case fatality rate, which is where you then start estimating undetected asymptomatic, in which case, and this is why the case fatality rate tends to decline over the progression of an epidemic. Um, and it's also, of course, by suppression measures, but it's also a function of being able to swing an increasingly wider and an increasingly accurate net 
uh, regarding how large a number of people have actually been in, uh, infected. So it's, it, you know, the, the answer to your question is, it's sort of a, th there's three different ways to calculate that case fatality rate, and they move sort of in sequence as the epidemic allows for the accumulation of that increasingly accurate data. That's great information. And Mark, has there been any updates to the case fatality rate based on age? I know early on there were some numbers to that, that effect. Um, there have been, you know, I think um, early on the talk of 10, 12, 15, 18% among persons over age 70. I'm going to stick by my WU paper, which reports us, you know, lower than that. So 60 to 92%, 70 to 79%, 3%, and over age 79, 6%. Um, so, and those, would, you, again, would you go through that a little slower again? So if they're in their 80 and above, what is it? Yeah, so 80 and above, 6% case fatality rate. Oh, much lower because we were using 16% early right. on. And, and again, those were numbers that were using crude case fatality. And so you had, um, you know. We had a smaller denominator. Correct. And also, we, yes. And also at that time, there were, you know, COVID deaths that were never identified as such. Right. Um, 70 to 79, 3%. Ah. And, then, and then 60 to 69, 2%. Now, a March 30th Lancet paper reports um, 80 and above 7.8% and uh, 60, I'm sorry, 70 to 79, 4.3%. But so we have a paper from Hong Kong, a paper from, you know, the Lancet. They're both in the same ballpark and both substantially, you know, three, four times lower than some of those early reports. So again, what does this mean? It gives us a little less anxiety about, you know, the nursing home outbreaks and such where you just fear, you know, one in 10 or 12 people dying. Um, and now we have, you know, uh, lower numbers than that, hopefully to work from. What about um, men versus women? You know, initially we thought, oh, the men are worse off because they smoke so much more, but that hasn't turned out to be the, the rationale. So do we have any better idea? Um, well, in Italy, it was men 8%, women 5%. In Korea, it was, you know, in both cases, in Korea, it was 1.2% and women 0.4%. So in both cases, you know, it's two or three times higher case fatality rate than uh, or roughly that uh, for men. Um, so it seems as if it has affected men more heavily. And I think some of the reasons for that have to do with, you know, so did you find some reports that said smoking did not increase the risk well, of mortality among men? It, it said that there was still a significant difference between men and women in countries where smoking was relatively equivalent between the sexes just like where it's radically different, like 50 versus 2% in men and women in China. I so see. in other words, even where it was controlled, there was still an increased fatality for men. Sure. You know, I think, I think there's still the phenomenon of, you know, men consume more alcohol. Men present to help, you know, to diseases with poorer underlying health in many cases than women. Um, and, you know, it has to do with lifestyles of men. There's, there's uh, you know, and certainly tobacco use is one of them. So uh, I think my suspicion would be that it, it has to do with the, just the higher preponderance of poorer lifestyle choices among men over a longer period of time, which then brings them to something like a COVID ex uh, experience with uh, more compromised health. Uh, two other things I read, and, and I don't have any data, were that uh, 
women have two X chromosomes, men have one. And I guess some of the things on the X chromosome are important for immune response. And I mm -hmm. guess they have what, 10% or more activation of some of those immune response genes than men do who only have one X chromosome. That's one thing I've read about. The other thing, of course, is the obvious would be uh, whether or not estrogen yeah, plays a role or not. So we'll have to search elsewhere for more details on that. I don't know if, Andrew, you have any information on that. I, I haven't. I have not heard anything to that effect. I, I did read a study this week where they've now been inflicting mice with COVID and found that indeed the estrogen receptor signaling is, is also protective in female mice against COVID. So I think you're onto something there, Tom, regarding that just that uh, projective effect of estrogen that's been reported in, in a lot of different settings. Now, what about case fatality rates for different underlying conditions? Like we've heard from the beginning, cardiovascular disease and diabetes and high blood pressure. Have other things been definitely added to that list? Cancer. And what is, and what, and what is the level of risk? Go ahead. Yeah. Cancer. Cancer is another uh, indicator, and that's you know brings up another issue: just neglect of care for cancer patients under the current scenario. You know, yes. who don't have COVID. So, I think being uh, empathetic toward cancer patients on both levels. Um, what I observe is a 20 to 25 percent increased risk of death for all of these comorbidities that are reported. So certainly cardiovascular disease is a higher contributor to mortality than say hypertension or diabetes. However, the, uh, the absolute level of, uh, of additive effect of COVID on top of that is about the same for all of those disease states. Um, and it's about a 20 to 25% increased risk of mortality with each of those comorbidities. So, uh, it isn't as if any one of them increases that risk more. It's that the underlying risk is higher, so therefore the final risk is higher. But the COVID, uh, COVID on top of that is not what you would call an effect modifier, where you have additive risk of dying, but it's more uh, a simple multiplicative in a sense of a 20 to 25% proportional increase on those. So yeah, it's a factor, um, no question about it. And it does worsen uh, the outcomes for those individuals. And, and of course, it's a reminder again of just, you know, those are disease states that are not something that you could, you know, prevent on a month long basis or treat within a month. You know, these are lifetime health conditions that, and hopefully it's a reminder to all of us to put more effort and resource toward prevention of these common chronic diseases that, that we think we can manage pharmacologically or otherwise, but yet all of a sudden you have a COVID epidemic and then suddenly something that seems like a meat and potatoes health problem like diabetes, bam, it's now highly uh, fatal. And, and what about, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of commentary about obesity being a major mm. risk factor. That's something that's so prevalent in our country. Is there an element of degree there, or do we have any data as to how obese uh, one must be to be at higher risk? So this has been talked about, and you know, one of the explanations for increased risk of COVID death among obese patients has to do with inflammation, which is known to be associated with obesity. Uh, however, I've read through a lot of the papers in the last week, and um, you know, 48% of hospitalized COVID patients are obese, but 42% of our country is obese. And so I'm not seeing the obesity as a standalone uh, predictor of, in, of worsened COVID outcomes 
in a really major way. Um, I kind of think that the obesity is, is a confounding factor that's just adding to the conditions that obesity has already led to, the diabetes, the uh, hypertension, uh, cardiovascular disease. So definitely obesity is always a, going to compromise health in the face of any health condition, but I haven't seen a lot of evidence that it's a standalone indicator okay. uh, that would increase the risk of fatality. Do you have numbers for how much smoking increases mortality? I do not. Okay. How about chronic lung disease? Um, no, I don't have any specific numbers, but certainly uh, COPD is, is a serious is a risk factor. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. That, that's why I want to know. Cause early on, some people suggested that we interviewed that it wasn't a risk factor. So it definitely is. Yes. Good. Uh, so we've been practicing social distancing now for a good, I think it's five weeks. Um, you know, what role does, you know, two numbers we've talked about the case fatality rate and the reproductive number uh, play in how much we should show social distance now and how much we can back off as, you know, May 1st seems to be a day for many states to start reducing it in some respect. Yeah. So the case fatality rate is more of an early indicator for the importance of social distancing. Because if you have a case fatality rate that's 0.1%, we as a society and a world have sort of decided that that's a tolerable, by mm -hmm. virtue of how we approach influenza, Correct. you know, level of mortality. So, but I think in terms of deciding, you know, that's a number that's not necessarily going to influence when we would then say reduce okay. social distancing. So, you know, I think these numbers, the case fatality rate, the reproductive number, they're used earlier on in order to evaluate the virulence, you know, the seriousness, the contagiousness, what might, what we expect might happen if it's left unrestrained. Yes. And so I think those numbers actually are less important. And now I think the numbers that are more important are just tr tracking the progression, the spread, the containment of the outbreak. So as long as the number of new cases and deaths keep going down, we can continue whatever behavior level we're on. Is that accurate? Yeah, you know, the, the number that currently would be 14 days of consistent decline in numbers of new cases per day coupled with 14 days of a consistent decline in the proportion of COVID tests, which test positive. Uh, okay. So those are looking at two different things. One is the true containment of the outbreak by virtue of decreased numbers. The other is the degree to which our testing is really starting to cover the population enough that the, found, the number who are found positive by that testing is declining. And that means we're suffocating the, the outbreak. So both of those are, are critical variables to follow. And, and as you see that 14 days both in both indicators being achieved, coupled with my desire to get to a 10 to 20% new cases per day of peak, then you can start to relax your measures. And of course, you also have to have certainty of trace, contact tracing resources in your, in your state. You know, we're, we're able to then 
you know, you're going to have an out. We have a, like I said, I think I mentioned it here, this wind turbine factory that had an outbreak um, here this last week, 150 employees in this factory. That's going to happen for the next year. We're going to have incidences of that. But can we use practices in the factory to prevent that? When we find a cluster of 10 or 20 cases in that factory, we can suffocate it by quarantining the affected, and then the contact tracers finding all the individuals who've been in contact with them, them in the previous 14 days, you know, some, some level of intimate contact, and then provide some measure of protection for those contacted individuals, bam, you can, you know, squash is like throwing a wet blanket on a fire that can then suffocate it out. And that's the technology we have to use to help us determine when we can then allow for more social interactions. And, and, you know, I guess one, one thing that's been kind of coming to my mind was just with the purposes of the social distancing and kind of the shutdown of businesses and stuff, it, it seems like initially our main goal was to prevent like the surge to medical resources that we couldn't tolerate. Yep. I know definitely in New York and some places, they, they very much felt that. I know locally in our hospital, which is normally running at 90% capacity, they're running in the 40% range and laying mm -hmm. off people. Mm -hmm. Would it be a goal of ours to run, run open enough to have the hospital 80% filled with cases? I mean, should we look at that metric at all? Or I guess to some extent, say we open it up and things start getting, getting uh, more, significant, more significant numbers of fatalities what are the chances we close it back down again? I mean, I guess those are some of the questions I hear patients asking me. I mean, have we shut it down too much in some parts of the mm. country that we're just drawing it out? You know, I think that question kind of gets at more of a, like a medical economics type of question. You know, how can we keep from seeing hospitals around our country literally go bankrupt potentially, right? Um, so that's a, a slightly different question from my side of this equation, which is how to ensure the greatest good for the greatest number at the population level. In terms of a strategy to manage the epidemic, yes, we certainly want to ensure that we have hospital capacity to manage a surge, but do we also then want to release the virus in a sense to allow the hospitals to have COVID patients to fill beds you know, in order to keep those hospitals from becoming so uh, such slow uh, levels of healthcare delivery that they're, you know, financially struggling. So it's kind of two different questions, but they are related. So uh, I, I don't really have a great answer for you, but I, I do see the, you know, the question. And over the course of the next year, that might become a more important issue as we have a greater control of the epidemic and the needs of the hospitals literally uh, also increase. I, I guess maybe a, another way of, of getting at it too, because I'm just trying to think through this as well. Apart from the risk of overwhelming our resources, what are the other the other goals and benefits we have with social distancing? <clears throat> um, reducing the the reducing the pace of the uh, of the epidemic, the transmission, and the total number affected. Um, so, the, I mean, those are, the, those are the goals. And as you gain control over the epidemic, you then relax social distancing because you believe you can handle them, either by virtue of the medical system being able to handle, handle hospitalized cases or your contact tracers being able to handle 
the occasional outbreaks that happen in the communities. Um, so those are the goal, you know, the goals of the social distancing uh, over time. So Mark, hopefully less people will get sick eventually. Yeah, right. Exactly. Mark, you know a lot about China. And in the last two weeks, there's been a lot in the news about people casting aspersions upon China, specifically the Chinese Communist Party, that they were not forthright in telling the world what was happening there. And you lived there, worked there for a number of years. What do you think about these charges that not only Americans, but Europeans and people from all over the world are making against China right now? Um, you know, not to defend China um, excessively because they have, you know, had to be held responsible for some things that they didn't do right. But in their defense, they informed the World Health Organization of an outbreak of 41 cases of atypical pneumonia on December 31st. On January 11th, they released the genetic information on the virus. And this was hailed by a Michael Osterholm, noted epidemiologist from the University of Minnesota, as he's pleased that health officials and scientists in China have released so much information on this. So, and then February 11th, the World Health Organization inspected China, including CDC experts on the team, releasing their report on February 16th. Now, mind you, at that time, we in the U.S. already had 13 cases with community spread on February 26th, and yet we were still treating this as if it was a non-event. So um, I think I see the outrage against China as partially being, you know, kind of an understandable reaction of frustration and anger on our part that we're suffering with this the way we are. But I'm not sure that it's um, that it's really justified given the you know, how the epidemic has played out, how China has managed the epidemic, and and then the the outcomes of that over time. So. You know, I, and furthermore, I just have this sense that when it comes to medicine and public health, there are no borders. You know, as physicians, you guys don't care if somebody's a physician from a communist country or, a, you know, a country that has, you, you practice by a different set of rules than politics. And I think there's no question that politics don't come into play in handling a global pandemic. But I think when it comes down to the science and the and the analyses and the patient care, people in China and the US have a shared concern to do what's right, to do what's right for their patients and for humanity. And so I think we should be careful about making generalizations that are based perhaps on some circumspect or some maybe even rumors and for which there isn't necessarily really good evidence. So I don't mean to just somehow give China a pass on anything. I know the country and some of the challenges but i also want to make sure that we that we don't transfer responsibility somehow to somehow maybe assuage our own frustration when we have too much work to do to get our house in order and and do the best by our own country and do a best our best to serve the world and um, i don't think we gain a lot by spending a lot of time and energy on on you know working ourselves up into frustration about situations that don't necessarily have a lot of good good um, evidence. As, as my mom said, if you don't have something nice to say, right? Don't, don't <laughs> yeah. say anything at all. Yeah. <laughs> I guess maybe, maybe one way as, as this could impart uh, knowledge to us would be in regard to the data, especially the, the early data from China. Are those trustworthy numbers? Do you find that they're pretty trustworthy? Or I guess that's one of the things I've heard from folks, like we can't trust any of the numbers from China. Right. Yeah, no, I, 
I guess after work, having worked in China for a long time, I have learned how to read between the lines. So I'm not saying that every number and every data point is, you know, absolutely perfect. But let's face it, I think in the last day here in the U.S., we've learned that there were a large number of deaths in Santa Clara, California, prior to the original reported death in the U.S. And how could we have gone uh, almost four months now without having seen the initial deaths in our country as having been accurately reported? We missed it by a couple of weeks. And so I don't think there's really, you know, uh, an epidemic isn't something that's easy to hide. And, you know, so I think, you know, China recently reviewed every death. They went to every nursing home and they increased their death numbers by 50%. Right. Now, some would say, see, that goes to show they were lying. I would say, no, it goes to show how hard it was to get those accurate numbers when they were in the middle of trying to put out a raging fire. And now they've been conscientious in going back and reviewing every death in the city and then thereby confirming a larger number of those were COVID attributed. So, you know, it's like, Next thing they're going to be accused of, you know, the U.S. is going to accuse some state health department of inflating deaths so that they get more federal funding. You know, so is it, are we underreporting or overreporting? And I think, you know, at what point do we learn to develop a healthy, certainly, but a healthy trust of the institutions that are responsible for, for managing this, either in our own country or elsewhere? And I think excessive skepticism or even conspiracy thinking isn't helpful often. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't assume that China data is accurate to the, down to the individual number, but in the main, I think it is. And I think the way that the epidemic has played out since then has shown that they were probably not deceiving us that you know, far off. Mark, it seems to me that the most important numbers are the ones that we can't argue with that much are like the hospitalization numbers and maybe the mortality curves as opposed to the case curves. Because cases depend who you tested, but the people who are going to die are going to die and be counted. Is that a more accurate reflection than case number? Um, yes and no. I would say yes in that it's, you know, like from the Wizard of Oz, you know, she isn't only merely dead, she's really most sincerely dead, you know. And <laughs> not, nothing's more accurate than a, than a death. Um, however, having said that, the, the deaths also are a function of, of you know, the, underlying, you know, the healthcare system, the, the level of medical care that those patients receive. You know, you're going to have differing mortality rates based on different, different contexts. You know, as well as the underlying health of the population, you know, that we're talking about, as we were referring to previously with, you know, some ethnic minorities in our own country. So, yeah, I would say the mortality numbers are, are you know, a more consistent and reliable indicator in that sense. Um, but they're also not perfect either in, you know, in terms of determining the cause of death. I mean, if somebody has, a, has COVID, but their underlying condition is, you know, chronic kidney disease, you know, what do they die of? Right. You know, and those are not easy. And so even those are not as simplistic as it might seem to attribute the primary cause of death. Mark, one, one of the things that we've seen with all of the social distancing and the shutdown is some things remaining open, um, things that are essential services, right? Uh, things like grocery stores um, and gas stations, uh, things not like churches that are all closed. Um, that That's led some people to speculate that uh, the people making these rules don't think church is essential. Hmm. Um, how, how does it make sense to allow people to go into crowded grocery stores like 
like I've seen and experienced, but not to have church services? Well, you hit it. The perception is that physical food is essential, but spiritual food is not. You know, Jesus had a response to this. He said, man does not live by bread alone, (laughs) but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so I think this is a worldview issue. So people of faith would contend that spiritual food is essential and that the way in which that food is experienced is essential in a sense coming together. Um, But I think also then putting on my science hat, it is easier to deliver spiritual food virtually than physical food. So a question, Mark, is that we've been talking so much about essential versus non-essential. Why aren't we talking instead about safe versus unsafe? Doesn't that make more sense? And then, um, it, yeah, definitely. And with that, if we spaced mm. out in churches, wouldn't that be considered safe? Right. I think you're right on. And I think that's the thing that happens in the course of an epidemic. Initially, it's essential. We have to keep people fed, you know, alive. Right. And you don't have time to think about even what is safe and what isn't safe because you haven't yet determined that. And so, yeah, I think we're definitely moving into an era in this epidemic where we can move from less concern about some what does essential mean to being what's safe and what's not safe practices. Yeah, I think that's a good way of thinking about it. What would be a safe way to get together for church? <sighs> Take out every other pew and request individuals to sit six feet apart, have more, more services. Unless you're in the same household. I guess so, yeah. That would be a safe application of that, right, yeah. No, these are all subtle but important things that need to happen as we reclaim our social, or, you know, our shared shared social and physical lives together. Um, So, yeah, I I would concur with that. I think the difficulty is that the officials and, you know, governmental uh, representatives, they tend to just use blunt mechanisms because they just don't trust people. They don't mm-hmm. trust people to be able to have the nuance to make, you know, so they, rather than painting principles of safe versus non-safe and what that means and what does six feet mean, they're just like, people are still going to violate it. They're not going to be able to stay six feet away. Okay, we'll just shut the doors. And I think we, we want to, especially as you have better control of the epidemic, you want to respect people and respect that they are able to handle some nuance I know my governor here, Governor Burgum in North Dakota, he's from the beginning. He said, you know, North Dakotans are work harder. So it's always North Dakota tough, North Dakota hard work. He said, we're changing the mantra to North Dakota smart. And so all (laughs) of his press conferences and all of our policies and guidelines, he adds on. So be North Dakota smart. And what he's alluding to is that you're responsible, that you are respectful of neighbors and others, you're respectful of science and you're respectful of evidence, but doing so in a way that doesn't require the governor to hold your hand or look over your shoulder. Now, a lot of states are upset that North Dakota has not had formal and official shelter in place laws, uh, but our governor would cast it in those terms of saying, our people have enough concern and, and in a sense, you know, ability to handle that. I'm not arguing we can. I'm not arguing we're different from the people of any other state. Just explaining how he has thought about it. And I think other states will be thinking more in those terms as we do begin to apply more safe versus non-safe practices and then expecting people to be responsible within them. I, kind of along those lines, you know, one question that I like to ask folks is looking down the road into the future. I mean, 
it's been a while, but you know, we always turn back to the Spanish flu. We've had pandemics before. We have influenza seasonally and other things. Do we really expect life to be different kind of forever? Or is this a one to two year thing with the every other pew? I'm thinking of restaurants that have to take out half their tables and going out to dinner with my kids just got twice as expensive. You know, mm-hmm. what, what do you think about all that? One to two years. Yeah. So it's going to yeah. be kind of a slow phase out till everybody feels comfortable going back to normal. That's my feeling. Yeah. I think, you know, and, and not entirely for bad reasons, but just, it's just the way it is. You know, society devolves, evolves and changes over time. So yeah, I think there'll be some things that'll change permanently. And, and yet a lot of this within a couple of years, I expect people will go back to a lot of similar practices. So Mark, one of the things that has been a constant um, interest of mine in all this is the question of whether or not the treatment of the pandemic is worse than the pandemic itself. In other words, are we causing more morbidity and mortality through social distancing and unemployment, social isolation, and reducing the availability of medical appointments than we are saving with COVID? In other words, if we had instead of just those graphs of cases and deaths going up and down, what if we had the graph of all other morbidity and mortality along with it to have a perspective? Do you think it would change at all what we're doing or what we intend to do for the next year or two? Mm. Yes, and I'm really glad you're thinking this way. Um, you're now getting into the topic of population health. Now, I know you're a, you know, a physician and an individual patient provider, but your thinking is becoming a, you know, kind of a population health way of thinking. So I'm Paul glad Carson's to see that. Paul rubbing off, yeah. <laughs> right, and, and that's my, <laughs> yeah. So from a population health perspective, definitely we should be considering, you know, safe ways to provide care for those conditions where delay might result in irreversible damage, such as cancer care, um, you know, chronic kidney disease or hepatic conditions, respiratory conditions. Um, And so definitely we should be paying attention to sort of stratifying or prioritizing conditions based on uh, the degree to which they can tolerate being delayed during this time of of, uh, social distancing and limited healthcare access for people. and so those are some of the things that, you know, that stand out to me as being some health issues and, and the way of prioritizing them. Because reading from other doctors, they're actually treating, um, you know, internal cancers differently because they can't come in. They're trying to do it by telehealth. Uh, I've read about patients dying, waiting for aortic valves. Uh, yep. where waiting two weeks was too long to wait and, and patients died. So, and if this is going to go on for one to two years, I don't know of very many conditions that can go on one to two years without treatment. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think this is an example where I think we need to bring the public health officials together with our medical center, you know, officials and leaders in order to sort of sketch out what does the next year look like? So what are these high priority potential irreversible damage conditions and how do we provide care for those patients in the midst of the epidemic. And then how do we think about summer? You know, summertime, maybe we need to find a way to provide funding to bring back a lot of retired physicians to just 
meet the pent-up demand. Think about all the pediatric vaccines and primary care and, you know, conditions that are going to have to be addressed, but that's a time when a lot of people want to go on vacation. And so maybe we need to prioritize our healthcare services, sort of like we are doing now for COVID. We need to switch that over to be a whole army of primary care providers of all levels to meet this pent-up demand, say in June, July, and et cetera. But Mark, how long do we need to keep spacing in our waiting rooms? If we need to keep spacing in our waiting rooms, we can't bring all those patients in our office unless maybe we just do check-in from cars. Yeah, no, I, that'll depend on where we're at with the epidemic, but those are, you know, the factors that definitely play in. And um, I mean, there's no absolute answer to that, but um, that's the level of risk that will have to be taken, though, as we strive to strike this balance between worsening the health of our population by excessive control over um, over uh, COVID. And, and Mark, I guess one question I would have as well is in talking to patients, especially thinking of the pediatric vaccines, we, we see a lot of pediatric patients, um, but really all patients. And I'm, I'm in a position of trying to convince people that it is actually more dangerous to go without their medical care than mm-hmm. to come in. Mm-hmm. How can we kind of build confidence in folks that it's okay to go out for your traditional medical care or that it's actually more dangerous to go without it, especially things like vaccines. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's a a messaging challenge. You know, I think um, maybe this is an example of how our country, we need more integration between our public health system and our medical systems. You know, they, they kind of exist in parallel here in the U.S. in many ways until we have an epidemic like this. And so I think, you know, this is a reminder. So therefore, public health messaging needs to acknowledge the need for medical services to be maintained at some level as opposed to just shutting down everything. Um, but then at the same time, the medical system has to cooperate and understand those times in situations when you have to comply with these very heavy-handed public health measures. So maybe it's more a matter of, you know, as we move forward, can we increase the level of communication between those two sectors? You know, that should be, you know, they should be partners, but sometimes they kind of exist on two parallel tracks in some ways, that medical individual patient model that you guys are certainly familiar with, and then that public health model, which is responsible for the whole society. Um, So this is an opportunity for all of us to remind ourselves of the existence of these two structures and how much they need each other and how much they need to collaborate. Mark, we've covered a ton of territory today in what perhaps is our longest podcast we've ever done. (laughs) So what, it's all good. So what final comments would you like to leave with listeners after this update of yours? Well, you know, we have all this talk about numbers, predictions, and, and mastery over this epidemic. And it's part of our human need to understand a crisis like this makes all of us confused to some degree or another, and it often makes us ask why. There are some for whom the COVID epidemic is just an example of kind of a random spate of bad biological luck. And it's really to no purpose. It's just something that we use technology to try and get over as soon as we can and get back to normal. For others, this is all a conspiracy and it leads people to ramp up their forces to oppose whoever the source of the conspiracy is. And, and it leads to further isolation, both of our thoughts and of our lives. 
But for those of us with faith, it's a reminder that we live in a broken world and that we too share in the suffering that's a part of that human existence in this broken world. But by faith and in solidarity with our co-sojourners on this, on this earth, we work together to manifest Christ's presence to each other, to use the best evidence and wisdom that we can to solve the problem. But it's important that in our haste that we don't rush to solve the problem, the sooner the better, and in so doing, miss out on the opportunity to truly journey with Christ, to reflect deeply on our experience, and in the course of it, to experience God's suffering with us. You're probably familiar with Thomas Akempis in his book, Imitatio Christi, where he reminded us of the importance of experiencing silence and solitude to truly experience Christ in us, Christ beside us, and Christ among us. And so I think I always like to, you know, I'm very involved in all the data and the research, but I really strive to allow my faith to inform myself to the daily discipline of silence and solitude, to reflect upon the deeper meanings of what, you know, not necessarily explaining why this is happening, but explaining how can this be redeemed for good, both temporal and eternal purposes in spite of, in spite of the epidemic. So I hope our re listeners will, will also remind themselves to transition any sense of anxiety or even anger about this into deeper reflection on self and on our shared humanity and on the opportunity to experience Christ every day. Mark, that was a beautiful way to sum it up holistically, which is reality. Uh, thanks for being with us. We hope you'll come back. Thank you, everybody, for um, being present with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio show and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of uh, Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at Redeemer Radio uh, forward slash doctor. And thank you for listening. This is Dr. Andrew Mullally. And this is Dr. Tom McGovern. Signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.